Good evening, friends. This is Franz Weinschenk welcoming you to another edition of Valley Writers Read. And contrary to some of the stories we've had on, we're in for a really happy story. All about a very joyful childhood followed by an eventful and rewarding life. Our writer, who is also the subject of the story, is Bakersfield architect James Varner. He entitles his story, Memories of Growing Up with Friends. So here now is Marv Allen to read Memories of Growing Up with Friends by James Varner. Just when I thought all was lost, you changed my mind. You gave me hope, not just the old soft soap. You showed that we could learn to share in time. You and me and Rockefeller, I'll keep plugging on. Your face will shine through all our tears. And when we sing another little Victory song Precious friend You will be there Singing in harmony Precious friend You will be there I had the good fortune to grow up during the 1940s and 50s in a great neighborhood at 421 Olive Street in the southwest corner of Bakersfield. At the time of my birth in 1940 and through my young childhood, Olive Street was the last residential street on the west side of town. Our house at 421 was the third house north of Palm Street, which was the last residential street on the south side of town. You might say we were effectively in the rural countryside. Behind our house was a canal where we caught fish and crawdads, or crayfish, for dinner. To the west of us, as far as the eye could see, was grazing pasture, with cows and calves we could ride, and a few bulls we had to keep an eye on. There were creeks and ponds to explore for tadpoles and frogs, a few farmhouses, and a lot of open land. To the south was an old farm with a large barn and pastures full of sheep. Our neighborhood also had plenty of kids for playmates and friends to explore the task of growing up. There was no TV, no computer games, and no organized soccer league. As kids, we lived out of doors sunrise to sunset. Most of the disciplinary action against me as a kid was for coming in after dark and being late for dinner. That happened quite a bit. My dad's red razor strap had a real bite to it, but it didn't seem to deter me from coming in after dark. As a youth and into my adult life, I have always been surrounded with meaningful friends, acquaintances, and companions on my life journey. Jimmy and Billy Olson lived directly across the street from our house. Billy and I were the same age and grade in school. Jimmy was a little older by a year or two. They had two older sisters and a younger brother and sister. Jimmy became kind of the channel by which new things came into our heads. A few of these I shouldn't mention. Where Jimmy got these ideas, we can only speculate. We were quite creative in our play, making up games and activities. We didn't have an arsenal of toys. There was no Toys R Us for us to go to, not to mention that our parents didn't have the money to buy us toys if there had been. If we played cowboys and Indians, we first had to make our own weapons, 
bows and arrows from tree limbs and a strand of string. We made pistols and rifles out of wood, clothespins, and cut-up rubber inner tubes for bullets. Our makeshift weapons worked quite well. We shot real arrows at each other. Our pistols shot rubber band bullets. No one ever lost an eye. We also made slingshots and rock slings like the one with which David slew Goliath. I became a very good shot with the sling. If we did get a little money, we bought a ten-cent comic book about some superhero. We read these superhero comic books, then created our own superhero and wrote our own stories and illustrated them in miniature comic books. Sunbeam Man, Savior of the World. Superman was my special hero. I had a pair of blue PJs. I painted the S symbol on the front of the shirt and donned a cape, usually a bath towel. I was convinced I could fly. I'd climb to the top of the garage and jump off, sure that I would soar up into the sky. I never could understand why I fell like a rock to the ground. I flew all the time in my dreams. I tried jumping off holding umbrellas that would collapse under the wind pressure and again fell like a rock. I tried making a parachute out of a sheet. That didn't work either. One time I even jumped off holding a Christmas tree upside down, thinking the branches would catch the air and I would fly. Needless to say, that didn't work either. That technique caused some damage to body and ego, and I finally gave up trying to fly by jumping off the garage roof. I did learn to fly, however. When I was about 17, I took lessons at Meadows Airfield in Bakersfield and earned my wings, but I had to do it with an airplane. Flying was a great experience, but a little costly of a hobby to keep it up. In college in 1964, at the outbreak of the Vietnam War, I, along with several of my buddies, went down to the Air Force recruiting office to enlist in the Air Force. When I was told I was an inch too short to be a pilot, but could be a navigator. I got up, turned around, and walked out the door. I joined the Peace Corps instead. Smart move on my behalf. Jimmy Olson grew up and became an airport controller in San Jose, California. Billy works for a reprographics company here in Bakersfield. We see each other from time to time. Last year, my wife and I went to see our grandson's preschool graduation. Sitting there, waiting for the ceremony to start, who walks in and sat down in front of us? Billy Olson. Billy, what are you doing here? Hey, Bobby, I came to see my grandson's preschool graduation. We both had grandsons in the same preschool class graduating together. Our grandsons had been playmates in preschool for two years, and we didn't know it until that night. It is a small world indeed. Here are two grown 67-some-odd-year-old men calling each other Billy and Bobby and acting like little kids. You would have thought we were the ones graduating from preschool that night. Next door to the Olsons lived the Brantleys, Denny, Jimmy, and Shuggy. Denny was a year younger than Billy and me, Jimmy two, and Shug three. Their dad, Orville, was an Army veteran who saw action in World War II. At night, when it was good and dark, all of us kids would sit outside at his feet and he would tell us stories about his experiences as a soldier in the jungles across the seas. Orville had a protruding eyebrow ridge and dark, beady eyes. He may have been a descendant of the Neanderthals. 
When Orville would come to intense, scary parts of his stories, he would squint and stick out his face toward us, his eyes looking right through me. In his stories, people got shot by snipers, eaten by lions, carried off by crocodiles, and swallowed alive by a huge boa constrictor or python snake. It scared the H-E-double-L right out of me. We had a very deep front yard, about 60 or 70 feet. It was quite a ways from the street to the front door of the house. Just off the street was a hedge about three feet high with an opening of about three feet wide to pass through. After one of Orville's stories, I was scared to death to go home and have to go through the opening in the hedge. It took great courage. I was sure some beast was on the other side of that hedge, and it would nab me and eat me alive. After working up my courage, I ran as fast as I could through the hedge and headed for the front door as fast as my legs could move. I hit the front door heart-pounding and got in the house as fast as I possibly could. My strategy worked and I never did get eaten, and I always went back for another story. Orville was a heavy equipment operator. One day, working a crane, a load he was lifting got off balance, and the crane tipped over. He jumped out for safety, and his wedding ring caught on a rail of the crane. Orville jumped free, but his ring and ring finger stayed on the crane. That, too, scared the H-E-double-L out of me, and to this day I refuse to wear a ring. My wife doesn't like that, but sorry, I'm not going to wear a ring. Kids can certainly be impressed and conditioned by odd things. I did wear a ring once when I was in kindergarten. My grandmother gave me a little ring with an opal stone. In class one day, my finger with the ring on it started to swell, and the ring would not come off. The teacher sent me to Mr. Green, the custodian. Mr. Green put my hand in a vise, clamped my hand in tight so I could not move it, then cut the ring off my finger with a hacksaw. I was petrified. That, plus Orville's experience, convinced me that rings are not a very good thing to put on your finger, at least not for me. How many people remember the name of the school janitor when they were in kindergarten? I can still see him standing there with his hacksaw in hand. The neighborhood ruffian was Jackie Clayton. He was about three years older than me and was usually up to no good. Jackie was always creating a drama of some sort to get someone in trouble or hurt. His mom was my kindergarten teacher, the one that sent me to the custodian to cut off my ring. She was a nice lady, but with her son Jackie you had to keep your eyes open. One day Jackie's mom took him shopping for a new set of clothes and shoes Returning home, he asked his mom, Can I go down the street and show Beverly, my sister, my new outfit? He came over and asked if Beverly could come out to play. Our mom said, Okay, Beverly, but be careful. She was well aware of Jackie and his ways. The city public works department had just sprayed the canal behind our house for mosquitoes, so it had an oily film on top of the water. Beverly and Jackie walked onto the bridge that crossed the canal just behind our house. Jackie said to Beverly, I am going to jump in the canal and tell everyone you pushed me in. And he did. He jumped in, new outfit and all, with my sister yelling, No, no, don't do it! Jackie ran home crying and told his mom that Beverly pushed him in the canal and got his new outfit wet and oily. Bev was in hot pursuit and told Mrs. Clayton it was not true. 
Jackie jumped in. Mrs. Clayton marched down to our house and demanded that my mom buy Jackie a new outfit. All the time Beverly was saying, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. Mom grabbed Beverly by the arm and marched her to the bathroom for a good whooping. Beverly had just gotten a smallpox shot and her arm was so sore she could hardly move it. Bev was crying, My arm, my arm! Just as Mom was about to deliver a blow with the hairbrush, she stopped and remembered the smallpox vaccine and realized Beverly could not have pushed Jackie in the canal because of her arm. She said, Beverly, I believe you. You could not have done that. Jackie did not get a new outfit from the Varners. On another occasion, we were playing lion and lion hunter in our front yard. I was the lion hunter. Jackie was the lion. We had a large front yard with two posts set up to string a badminton net across. There were metal hooks on the poles to tie the net ropes to. I shot at the lion a few times with my make-believe gun, but it did not phase the lion. That lion came after me in full attack. To get away, I climbed up one of the poles, pretending it was a tree. The lion grabbed me by the legs and started to pull. My arm got caught on a hook right under my armpit. I screamed, telling Jackie to stop. My arm is caught on a hook. But being a voracious lion, he just kept pulling, even after blood dripped down on his face. My mom heard the screams and came running. I was hanging on the pole by my arm like a side of meat at the packing house. It was bad. I was rushed to the hospital and sewn back together and fortunately still have my arm. There is a fairly impressive scar that is a reminder of the lion hunt. On the southwest corner of Olive and Palm was Pop Ashbaugh's house. He was Jimmy and Billy Olson's grandfather. Their mother was his daughter. He had another daughter named Thelma. Thelma married Guy Golden. They had about five or six boys and lived with Pop Ashbaugh. The two youngest boys, Gary and Kenny, were in our age group. Thelma used to babysit my sister and me when we were little, and we referred to her as Aunt Thelma. We often went to visit Uncle Guy and Aunt Thelma, so, of course, Gary and Kenny must be my cousins. I never could figure out how Gary and Kenny could be my cousins and Jimmy and Billy could be their cousins when Jimmy and Billy and I were not related at all. It was a puzzle that took me many years to figure out. My kids probably had a similar problem growing up, as I always referred to one of my good friends, Paul Kelsey, as their Uncle Paul. To this day, Paul is still referred to as Uncle Paul. Pop Ashbaugh had a huge apple tree in his backyard that kept us from getting hungry during our play. It was a good tree to climb and hide in during a game of hide-and-seek or cowboys and Indians. Pop also raised chickens and turkeys. Behind the chicken yard was a rather large old chicken coop that we used as a clubhouse to plan our day's activities. On a few occasions, a couple of the neighborhood girls would come in and do a hoochie-coochie strip-tease dance for us. That was rather exciting for a bunch of eight- and nine-year-old boys. Around the corner were Roger and Doug Kelly. Roger was my age and Doug a little younger. Roger and I became close in an odd way. We were good friends, but not close buddies. We were often on opposite sides in clod fights during our Christmas tree wars. Every year after Christmas, we would collect as many discarded Christmas trees as we could find and build a fort out of the Christmas trees. Of course, the kids in the next street over would try to steal our trees for their fort, 
and it would end up in a dirt-clawed battle. My friend Roger suddenly became an enemy just after Christmas. Roger was an athletic type and a good football player. He dedicated his life to the sport, becoming head football coach at College of the Sequoias. In high school, Roger played end for the BHS Drillers. He later played for the Cal Poly Mustangs in San Luis Obispo. Roger was one of the few surviving players from the terrible plane crash in Toledo, Ohio, when the Cal Poly team went down in October of 1960. Eighteen players died in that crash. Bakersfield lost three of its sons on that day. Surviving along with Roger was Carl Bowser, also of Bakersfield. Carl was Roger's seatmate on the trip. Roger and Carl were sitting over the wing section, a part of the plane that remained intact. Whenever I fly, I always try to sit over the wing section. Roger's back was broken in that plane crash. He was in traction for months. It was not certain if he would ever walk again, let alone play football. I made it a point to visit Roger daily during his recovery. I played my guitar and sang him songs and tried to keep the tears from my eyes. Roger is now retired from the sport. Roger, that little snot-nosed kid I threw dirt clods at, remains a treasured friend in my memories. At some point, I'm not sure when, the Cordovas moved on to Olive Street. Abe was my age. I really can't pinpoint a time when we became friends. Seems like we were always friends, without a beginning or an ending. There was never a dull moment in our friendship. Something was always happening. Abe had a talent for music. Abe's dad taught him how to play a guitar. Once Abe learned the basic chords, he could play anything he could hear. He could listen to a record, then hum a few notes to himself, and before long he could play what he had just heard. It was amazing. Abe taught me to play the guitar. I didn't have the ear Abe had, but we learned to play quite well together. During high school and into junior college, we had developed quite a repertoire of folk songs and played at parties and gatherings. It was great fun. Abe used his talented hands to become a doctor of chiropractic and lives in Aptos, California. We still keep in touch. The Olive Street kids were a tight-knit group, a regular Spanky in our gang. We built forts to play in. We built a multi-level treehouse with five or six rooms in the old cottonwood tree right behind our house. It is a wonder that no one fell out of that treehouse. We built a small city for a fort that looked like a movie set for a Western movie. We had a town store, a saloon, and a jail. Cowboys, bank robbers, and Indians were in constant battle. We also dug underground tunnels to play in. That was kind of foolish now that I think back on it. We played baseball in the street and put on circus shows for the neighborhood parents and kids, complete with clowns and a trapeze act. On the south side of our house, my dad built a very high swing set made out of steel pipes. The top bar was about 12 feet high. If you pumped hard with your legs, you could get to a height of weightlessness where gravity starts to pull you back, like a stall in an airplane. That was fun, but also a little scary. It was also fun to swing high and then parachute out. Dad hung a trapeze bar from the top of the swing set. I learned to loop my knees around the bar and start swinging, then let go and do a flip, landing on my feet. Learning to do this took some time and effort. Many a time I would land on my head and knock myself out. 
I don't know how many times I woke up with my mother holding me under the faucet in the kitchen, running cold water over my head. Coming to after being knocked out was a strange feeling, a spinning sensation with a heavy ringing in my ears. Well, it paid off, however, and I was the one to perform the trapeze tricks at the neighborhood circuses. One of the neighborhood kids, who was more my sister's age, about four or five years older than me, named Freddie Holt, was very enterprising and had a flair for theatrical things. Somehow he was able to get a huge army surplus tent, and his dad put it up in a vacant lot at the corner of Palm and Olive next to the Brantley place. We built a stage in the back of the tent. Freddie wrote plays and got us kids, including my sister's gang of neighborhood girls, and there were plenty of them, to act out certain roles and put on a performance. We sold tickets, made popcorn, and put on live shows to a packed tent. It was great fun. One night, the tent caught fire from one of the candles used as stage lights. The tent burned down. Fortunately, no one got hurt. That was the end of that. Freddy moved away shortly thereafter, never to be heard from again. I am sure Freddy, wherever he went, did something with his life that included entertainment and the stage. Or maybe he became a fireman. The brother of Denny and Jimmy Brantley's father bought the lot where the tent theater once stood and built a house. He and his wife and daughter Bobby Brantley moved in. I was about ten. Bobby was in high school, but I thought she was a beautiful goddess or something. I had a crush. Of course, she didn't know I existed. On Valentine's Day one year, I went down to the local drugstore and bought a box of chocolate-covered cherries and gave them to her. She kissed me on the cheek, and my heart went into a spin. I did not wash that cheek for weeks. Bobby did not live there for long, maybe a year or two. The house was sold to the Bertolucci's, and two new kids joined the neighborhood, Alex and his little sister Frances. Alex was a few years younger than the bulk of the gang, so he had a hard time trying to tag along. But he managed. Alex still lives in that house with his wife. Their kids have grown and moved on, however. The Bertolucci's were Italian immigrants who did not speak English. Alex and Francis learned to speak very quickly. Their mom also learned to speak very well. But Pietro, their dad, never did learn more than hello and our names. Talking with him was a real kick. With a lot of sign language, we always got the point across and communicated. Pietro was an expert arborist and knew how to prune and care for all kinds of trees. He took care of the neighborhood trees. He also knew a lot about grapes and made wine in his garage. We always got a gallon of wine for Christmas. If the wine was not imbibed in a reasonably short order, mixed with a little olive oil, it became a fairly good salad dressing. When the Bertolucci's came to Bakersfield, they were sponsored by our next-door neighbors, Pete and Nancy Consoni, also Italian. The Bertolucci's were their cousins from the same village in Italy. Pete and Nancy did not have any children, so Pete kind of took me under his wing as a surrogate son. He taught me how to tend a garden and start one of my own. He introduced me to eggplant. Nancy made some good eggplant dishes. Eggplant parmesan is one of my favorite dishes. Pete also knew a lot about grapes. He, too, had a winery in his garage. During the Prohibition, Pete was a bootlegger. 
Mom told me that on several occasions during that era, the police would raid our house by mistake, looking for Pete. The suspicion was that our house was once a house of ill repute, a speakeasy. That is, before my folks moved in, of course. When Pete and Nancy moved away, about four or five blocks, and the house was demolished, they found hundreds of bottles of booze hidden and buried around the garage. Pete moved all his still and winemaking apparatus to his new garage and continued his hobby. My dad and all but two of his seven brothers were prize fighters. Uncles Pat, John, Bill, and Skeet won boxing titles. My dad won the Golden Gloves title twice. Uncle Claude became a world featherweight champion in 1938. My dad was very much into the boxing scene. Fight night on the radio was about the only time dad would listen to the radio. Whenever more than two or three kids came over to play and Dad was home with time on his hands, out came the boxing gloves. He would set up a ring in the front yard and the fights began. We all learned to handle ourselves pretty well. This was one of my Dad's activities for me and my friends clear through high school. Sometimes this was fun and sometimes it wasn't. I do not recall anyone ever getting hurt, at least not very bad, nothing more than a bloody nose. I did feel a little uncomfortable with my dad's aggressive nature and his love for fighting. On several occasions, he would get mad at something he thought one of the neighborhood kids did, like jump in the front yard hedge or leaving a mess in the front yard. One of the kids would get blamed for what a stray dog had done. Dad would tell me who he suspected and to go beat them up. I never did what he asked as they were my friends, I could not understand why he thought those things or why he would ask or want me to do such a thing as beat them up. Don't get the wrong impression about my dad. He was a good-natured man with a lot of compassion. He would literally give someone in need the shirt off his back. He just would not, to use his words, take any crap from anybody. When I was born, Dad was a bellhop at the El Tajon Hotel, Bakersfield's Swank Hotel at the time. When I was two or three, he decided to go into business for himself. Following the lead of his older brother, Pat, Dad bought a truck with a large open box on back and started a sanitation garbage collection service. As a kid, when asked what my dad did for a living, I would say he is a G-man, which they took to mean he was an FBI agent. On weekends, after yard work was done and night was about to fall, he would wash out the truck bed gather all the kids in the neighborhood, and take us to the drive-in movies. He would back the truck into a double space so the back of the truck faced the screen, open the back gates, and hang a speaker on each side. With our lawn chairs, we had our own portable movie theater. I wonder what other people thought seeing a garbage truck full of kids hooping it up at the drive-in theater. It is a good thing there was no seatbelt law in effect then. Actually, my very first friend ever that I recall was Don Waller. Don was not even in our neighborhood. He lived on A Street, about six long blocks to the east of Olive, and about two houses north of Palm. Don and I were, and of course still are, the same age. I do not really remember meeting Don, as we were only one year old at the time we met, and still in our mother's arms. Our mothers were taking our sisters, Beverly, my sister, and Marie, Don's sister, to enroll in kindergarten at William Penn School in 1941. We may have shared a goo or two. That day was the beginning of a lifelong friendship, not just for Don and me, but for our entire families. 
Our families became very close. The Wallers and the Varners became like one big family. We shared holidays, vacations, and just general family time together. Don and I have shared a lot of experiences. We were Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts together. We went to summer camp together as kids. We traveled Europe together on a summer break from college. Don and I went to San Jose State University together and became ATO fraternity brothers. I was Don's first client when he became a stockbroker. I bought a share of RCA and a share of Comstat. This launched Don's career as a successful stockbroker. Don was my best man when I got married in 1968, and I was his a few years later. Don also stood by me and served as a pallbearer when my wife Karen died in 1973. She passed away late in the evening of September 25th on my 33rd birthday. Karen had an advanced stage of lupus and was in the hospital. I was by her side day and night for days. Don's wife Linda invited me to have dinner and a birthday cake to celebrate my birthday. After dinner, I decided to stay home that night and get some rest. My sleep was interrupted by a phone call from the hospital informing me that Karen had passed away. That was a bittersweet birthday. After graduation from architecture school, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in 1972, I started a design-built business. My second commission was to design and build a home for Don and his family in Los Osos. I had just started building their home when Karen passed away. Lives and experiences move on. Don and Linda are no longer married. Don still lives in San Luis Obispo in a different house, and I am in Bakersfield. But we are still meaningful friends to this day, and so are our sisters. When I was in the second grade, my dad signed me up in Jack Frost's Little League JBA Baseball. There was another little boy named Paul Kelsey who signed up and was on the same team as me. Paul went to my school but was a year behind me. My dad, who became an assistant coach, offered to provide transportation for Paul to and from practice. Well, needless to say, Paul and I became, and still are, very good friends. Paul and I, too, have shared a lot of meaningful experiences, mostly on motorcycles. Paul got a motorcycle when he was 14, so of course I had to get one, too. A 1952 650cc rigid frame Spring Hub Triumph. We went all over the place on those things. When we were 15, no driver's license, no insurance, just a lot of tenacity, we took off, just the two of us, on a trip to Yosemite, Stockton, Sacramento, San Francisco, Hollister, and back home. Our parents must have been crazy to let us go, two 15-year-olds off on an adventure like that on motorcycles. No way would I have let my son do that at 15. Several years after I had grown, I asked my mother what she was thinking about when they let us go on that trip. She just said, I didn't worry. I knew you would be okay. You had a good head on your shoulders. That was a good compliment from my mother, but I am not sure whose head she was looking at. In Yosemite, we camped out in a tent. We left some food out on a camping table when we crawled into the tent to go to bed. In the middle of the night, we heard a banging noise and some grunts. We peeked out of the tent and saw a bear finishing off our food. That put the fear of God in us. We did not know what to do except just lay there and be quiet. Fortunately, the bear got his fill and moved on to the next campsite without wanting to check to see what tasty morsels might be in the tent. 
It was late in the day when we approached San Francisco. We were excited to see the Golden Gate Bridge and ride our motorcycles across it. Unfortunately, the closer we got to San Francisco and the bridge, the more dense the fog became. Visibility was very low. When we got to the toll booth, we found out that we had already crossed the bridge and didn't know it. In San Francisco, we asked a service station attendant how to get to Golden Gate Park. We planned to camp in the park. He told us that is not a good idea. He gave us directions to a community park not far from the gas station. The park was on a hill. On the top of the hill was a tennis court with a 10-foot-high chain-link fence around it. One corner was surrounded by trees. We wheeled our bikes in and made a barrier in the corner of the court. We rolled out our sleeping bags and settled in to get some sleep. About midnight, we heard a group of guys drinking and talking. Soon one walked over by the trees to take a leak and saw us. Everything became quiet. Several of the guys peeked through the fence and trees to see what was there. Paul and I thought, we have had it now. What is going to happen? One big guy went to the gate of the court, opened it, and stood there for some time. His body filled the frame of the gate opening. He was one big dude. I had a flashlight and clutched it tight to use as a weapon if need be. Paul had a pocket knife ready and waiting. The bear at Yosemite didn't seem so bad now. The fear of the unknown was on our side. They saw the motorcycles and assumed the worse. Two hell's angels camping out. They decided to let us be. If they had known we were two little 15-year-old kids, who knows what would have happened. Paul and I eventually fell asleep from exhaustion. We woke up unharmed to a sunshine morning. The night gang of guys gave way to an old oriental man and some kids doing a form of tai chi, an old lady scolding us for parking our motorcycles in her park, and a strange little boy with a backpack asking if he could go with us. We packed up and got out of that park. Paul and I had seen the movie The Wild One with Marlon Brando. The movie was based on a real event where a wild motorcycle gang took over Hollister, California. We decided to go to Hollister and check it out. Here are two 15-year-old kids on motorcycles. We pulled onto the main street in Hollister, and people must have thought that the wild one was back. At the sight of us, people cleared off the street and went into the nearest shop and shut the doors. Just like the guys in the park, they didn't see us, just our motorcycles. That was a strange experience. I could feel their fear. We could sense that we were not welcome, so we did not stay long. In 1968, Paul and his wife Annie moved to Morro Bay so he could attend Cal Poly the same summer Karen, my first wife, and I moved to San Luis Obispo. I started architecture school and Paul studied accounting. We were in constant contact through college. When I became a designer builder, I designed and built Paul's home in Morro Bay, overlooking Morro Rock. After the passing of my wife Karen in 1973, and I was building the Waller House in Los Osos, I met an attractive young girl named Jean Dixon. Jean lived across from the construction site. She lived there with her sister and brother who were students at Cal Poly. One night I was working late into the night and my nightlight burned out. I went across the street to borrow a light bulb for my nightlight. One thing led to another, and we started dating. In 1975, while building the Kelsey House in Morro Bay, during work to tie the building sewer into the sewer main in Shasta Street, I was trapped in a cave 14 feet underground. 
After the rescue squad dug me out and I could breathe again, I decided it was time to remarry. I asked Jean to marry me. We got married December 20, 1975, in Paul and Annie's house overlooking Morro Rock, the day before Paul and Annie moved in. Paul was my best man, Annie a bridesmaid, and their young daughter Margie was the flower girl. Later, when our first child was born, Paul and Annie became our daughter's godparents. Lives change, and people move on to new and different lives. Paul and Annie are no longer a couple, and someone else lives in that house. But Paul and I remain good, close friends, and Paul is known as Uncle Paul in our house. As I mentioned earlier, 421 Olive Street was on the last residential street in the southwest corner of town. Well, that began to change in 1952. After the big 1952 earthquake that nearly wiped out Bakersfield, Mom and Dad decided to move and get a new home. Our house at 421 weathered the quake well. We didn't receive any real damage, but the house shook like a bowl of jelly. It is a wonder it didn't collapse, as it was not a very well-built house. The quake hit early in the morning. The house was rocking back and forth. My dad thought someone was trying to break in. He grabbed his gun and went outside looking for the culprit. My room was a screened-in back porch at the rear of the house. It was sort of like a fishbowl, open on two sides. There were oil refineries along Rosedale Highway a few miles away. The quake caused one of the huge holding tanks to collapse and explode. I heard the explosion out of my fishbowl window and saw a huge ball of fire go up into the sky. I was sure the Russians had dropped a bomb on us. I crawled under my blankets and covered up my head. That was my introduction into earthquakes. My sister and I were not happy at the thought of moving, and we put up a big fuss. The folks looked at houses in Oildale near Dad's business. They looked at houses along 24th Street between the river and town. They looked at some very nice houses. No matter what they liked, Beverly and I complained. We did not want to leave our friends and neighborhood. Wattenberger Construction came to the rescue for Beverly and me. Wattenberger bought the corner lot where Pop Ashbaugh's garden and fruit trees once grew and built a house. My folks bought the house, and we moved from 421 to 401 Olive, just two houses away. That worked for Bev and me. Two houses down the street, and I now had a real bedroom of my own, not a screened-in back porch barely big enough for a bed. My sister still lives in the house at 401 Olive. It is the only house left standing on the west side of Olive Street between Palm and Dracena, where our house at 421 once stood is a storage parking lot. Wattenberger didn't stop at the northwest corner of Palm and Olive. He bought the entire sheep farm and pasture and started building houses south of Palm Street. Olive Street continued south. That didn't set well with the Olive Street boys. Our open spaces to play and explore were disappearing. However, there is a good side to things, too, if you are patient and look for it to happen. I developed an interest in and a hobby of exploring the construction sites to see how houses were built, how things go together, and trying to figure out what the different spaces would become. When asked by a counselor registering me for high school what I wanted to be, there was no question in my mind. Architect. I wanted to be an architect. And that is what I eventually did. I became an architect. But that is another story. 
I am thankful to Mr. Wattenberger for helping to point the way to my life's career, but also I am thankful to him for building a house for the Lettier family to move into. In 1953, Wayne Lettier moved on to the Olive Street extension. Who was this invader? The Olive Street boys did not accept South of Palm as part of our neighborhood. He was outside the boundary and lived in what was once our playground. My first encounter with Wayne was not on the best of terms. Like the Olive Street boys, Wayne was into digging underground forts. I sat and watched him digging away in the lot behind his house, observing from a distance. It took several days, but soon he dug the trenches and tunnels and covered the trenches with plywood and covered the plywood with dirt. Satisfied with his task, Wayne took his tools and went home. I, too, went in as it was the end of the day. That night, someone, or some ones, trashed Wayne's underground fort, caving in the tunnels and stomping in the plywood. I did not know who did it, but I suspected the kids from Cypress Street, two blocks over to the east. Doesn't matter who did it, Wayne came out to play in his fort, finding his handiwork trashed. I was there watching and received Wayne's wrath and accusations. In his mind, I was the one who did it. Who else but the kid who sat and watched him build it? He came over madder than heck, shaking his fists. I told him I had no idea who did it, but it was not me. So we squared off, mostly yelling and threatening. We came close to fisticuffs, neither one backing down. Wayne was a little bigger than me, but my dad's training in boxing gave me confidence to handle the situation. Eventually, things calmed down. We went over to look at the damage and did some repairs. From that day on, Wayne and I were nearly inseparable. Wayne and I were just kids of 13 and 14 years old. We formed a friendship bond that has endured through time and has become even more enriched after nearly 60 years of shared interest and experience. Wayne became the brother I always wanted. We live in cities separated by 350 miles and do not get to visit on a frequent basis. But when we do have the opportunity to visit, it is like time disappears and we are kids again, as if time has stood still. We pick up right where we left off. To this day, Wayne still blames me for destroying his underground fort. At least, he laughs about it now. Wayne and I remain close. I look forward to seeing him every Thanksgiving when he comes to Bakersfield to see family. We always get together for dinner around that time. This past year, we celebrated his 70th birthday, which falls a few days after Thanksgiving. On September 25, 2010, I, too, turned 70. To celebrate, I took 275 of my friends out to dinner. There would have been more, but not everyone could make it. At dinner, as I looked around the room at all the wonderful, unique people gathered, I felt like the most blessed, luckiest, richest man in the world, surrounded by such great, quality, and meaningful people that I call friends. That is a gift that cannot be measured. I told my guests that night that this dinner was my gift to them, as my way of saying thank you for being my friends and a part of my life. How can one place a value on friendship? I cherish all my friendships, the short-lived and the everlasting. Friendships become a part of who we are. If any one of them had not occurred, I would not be who I am today. The memories of each are as fresh as if it is happening this very moment. They are locked within my heart and mind. The bond of true friendship is eternal. 
whether near or apart, there is a connection that cannot be severed. As Gibran said regarding friends in his book The Prophet, when you part from your friend, you grieve not, for that which you love most in him may be clearer in his absence, as the mountain to the mountain climber is clearer from the plain. was Marv Allen reading a story entitled Memories of Growing Up with Friends by James Varner. As we heard, the stories were replete with James introducing us to youngsters he met in his neighborhood or at school who became lifelong friends. And although one time we wondered about how his parents allowed him and another 15-year-old to get on motorcycles and ride all the way up to San Francisco by themselves, but for the most part, his parents seemed to have had just the right balance of mentoring and control without interfering too much or too little in guiding their children in the right direction. All of us can learn a lesson from them. It seems like all the friends James made over the years became lifelong friends, and wasn't it really remarkable that he was able to celebrate his 70th birthday with 275 of those friends? There aren't many of us who can do that. So, congratulations, James Varner. Friends, our author tonight, James Varner, attended schools in Bakersfield. After graduating from Bakersfield College, he attended and received a B.A. degree in architectural science from Cal Poly. From 1964 to 1966, he served in the Peace Corps in North Africa. He's currently engaged in the practice of architecture. Thank you again for your great story tonight, James. Hope you have more for us in seasons to come. And so we come to the end of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read story again, just go online to kvpr.org and link up with archived audio. Next week, our author will be Janet Nichols Lynch. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read.